Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 6th, 2019, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we're going to have a, things a little bit different. Um, part of our first part of the show is going to be an interview that's pre-recorded between Professor Thaddeus Romanski and Sean Carney, the president of 40 Days for Life. And um, then in the second part of our show, we'll be talking live to Jimmy Aiken, the author of Teaching with Authority. And you all know Jimmy from Catholic Answers Live, which airs here on Red Sea Radio in the afternoons. And uh, Jimmy is absolutely brilliant. Um, before we do anything else, I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station. And also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena, Waco. And also welcome to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. The first few minutes of our show are live, so if you want to call in and tell us something that's happening at your parish or your uh, deanery or Anything that might be of interest to our listeners, feel free to call us at 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Good morning, Deacon Mike. Thanks for that little uh, little uh, treat that you gave me in um, my title. I appreciate it. I had a fun time talking to uh, Sean Carney. I think he's got some important things to, to say, especially about the, the 40 Days for Life benefit dinner that's coming up in about three weeks. And um, you uh, Central Texas listeners, make sure you listen because uh, he's got some nice things to say about y'all up there in Waco. So so listen for that. Um, spaghetti dinner at St. Anthony's and Brian, right? Yes, this weekend. So uh, tomorrow morning, the men will be stirring plenty of pasta sauce and also Friday morning. And um, the meatballs should be prepared. And... Um, if you haven't heard yet, it is the 7th, 7th a- uh, annual spaghetti dinner. It is this Sunday, February 10th, and uh, adults, $10 plates to go from 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., and children are $8. The dining room will be open from 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., and tickets can be purchased from anybody in the Altar Society or at the church office if you are wanting to go. And speaking of tickets, we've got three free tickets here at the studio for the first caller to come in, to call in to the studio line. 855-683-7332. Our uh, listener, our, uh, we've got uh, people standing by at the telephones ready to take that first person to call in to claim these three spaghetti dinner tickets Judy Como that's not you you cannot claim these <laughs> yes and it's uh, free tickets and uh, if you have been to the spaghetti dinner it is absolutely wonderful and um, it's amazing to see the number of people that come to yes, this it is. every year yes, and it is. Um, the effort that goes into parish-wide mm-hmm. to put this on mm-hmm. because I think for me that's the highlight is everybody working together to put this on. Right, and it is delicious suga. It's great homemade meatballs. There's also cookies. People bring uh, 
cakes. They donate cakes, right? Um, just a big meal that you can have on Sunday morning. Again, uh, call in at... 85 Love Red Sea, 855-683-7332. And uh, we'll be happy to give you three tickets to the spaghetti dinner. Mm-hmm. But I think right now we're going to go ahead and go to the Sean Carney interview, and then we'll go to break when it finishes. But you can still call in while it's playing. We have people standing by, trained professionals standing by. Take your phone call, 85 Love Red Sea. Here's Sean Carney. Happy to be talking to the one, the only Sean Carney with 40 Days for Life. Good morning, Sean. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good to be on. Yeah, this is uh, this is that time of year, 40 Days for Life benefit coming up uh, in the Brazos Valley. Let everyone know all the details that they need for the benefit and what, what they can expect. Yeah, well, with everything going on in our country, uh, for better or for worse, it's it caused a lot of uh, a lot of action and, and excitement about the benefit. We're actually uh, on February first. We were at the attendance for the RSVPs of what we had uh, at last year's benefit, and so it, outstanding. It's be a, a packed house, and we're really excited about it. It's on February the twenty-first, Thursday night, at the Expo Complex, where we always have it. Our uh, keynote speaker will be Raymond Arroyo from EWTN, and he is very excited. He's been doing a lot to promote the Unplanned movie, which uh, portrays uh, Abby Johnson's beautiful conversion, which all happened in in Bryan, Texas. And so uh, it's going to be a great night. People can go to 40daysforlife.com slash benefit and RSVP, and I encourage folks to do so because we have had just a fantastic response. Yeah. Uh, during a very critical time right now in, in our country. That's superb. Um, just for our uh, Waco listeners, we have listeners in Central Texas, not just in the Brazos Valley now, thanks be to God. Um, yes. 40 Days for Life can help them with their struggle there in Waco with uh, the Planned Parenthood opening there again, and they're welcome to come down to Bryan College Station if they like, Yes. Yeah, we'll have a lot of folks from Waco. Waco, by the way, is just one of the best 40 Days for Life campaigns in the country, just so folks can know that. Uh, uh, featured them in the in the book that I wrote uh, last fall, The Beginning of the End of Abortion. I just spoke at a pastor's breakfast in, at the uh, football stadium there at Baylor a couple of weeks ago, and uh, a lot of people will be coming over from Waco. You know, they did what we pray to God they don't do. In Bryan College Station, they did in Waco, and that is they went back. Yeah. Parenthood opened up a, a very large abortion facility because, like in College Station, there's a huge market uh, for abortion in Waco. And they went in there and actually started doing abortions secretly uh, for the first time during the week of Christmas uh, last year. And so it, it really is, you know, having. We always we have a, obviously our headquarters is in is in Bryan, Texas. We, we we maintain a very large presence there as a deterrent to Planned Parenthood. College Station is now the largest college town in America that does not have an abortion facility, and we want to keep it that way. The benefit's a great way of of doing that, and there's still so much momentum in in Bryan College Station, and so a lot of people come from throughout the region and across the state to this event. 
it's a great event. It, it's inspirational, but we're gonna, we're going to share a lot of the a lot of the good, the bad, and the ugly of what's going on in the pro life movement. I mean, 40 Days for Life, which started there, obviously has been a, a bright light for a lot of communities like Waco. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're in 816 cities in 56 countries, and there is so much beauty and power in going and praying in front of an abortion facility. We certainly saw that for 15 years in College Station, but this is this is one of the bright lights of the pro-life movement right now. But there are a lot of challenges as we see uh, really an infanticide movement uh, sweeping our country right now. And uh, th- this is the time to uh, to buckle down and, and go to work like we've never done before. Yeah, let's jump to that. Um, New York City, uh, where there are more—correct me if I'm not quoting this correctly—there are more African-American babies aborted than there are born— uh, New York State just passed this uh, law, which brings uh, down any restrictions on abortion up to the moment of birth. Correct, and and again, if I'm not stating any of that correctly, please clean it up. All of that is correct, and it it's it is sad and insane that we're even having this conversation. You know, Roe v. Wade, America. Is, is one of very few countries that allows abortion, grow of, allows abortion mm-hmm. all the way through all nine months. Yeah, it's not a and good list of countries America. to be on. No, no, it's us and Canada, North Korea, and China. Mm-hmm. Those are the four countries. And, you know, we, New York said, okay, we're going to take advantage of that. We're going to we're going to deregulate it because then the states regulate it, right? Right. And and but they're going to deregulate it, allow abortions up to birth. And now there's places like Virginia and Rhode Island advocating for no medical assistance for the baby if he or she does survive the abortion. And so that that is by definition infanticide and and delivering a baby, you know, and and killing it at 30 seconds before it comes out is infanticide mm-hmm. and it, it's a wake-up call, you know, to, to all of us. And we've been put in this, this position as a country with, with our abortion laws of when are we comfortable aborting the baby? You know, people say, well, uh, eight weeks is okay or 12 weeks is okay, 16 weeks is okay. And really, the arguments for an abortion, the arguments that abortion survives on, can be used to support infanticide. And that's all that they're doing. And so it, it's you know, for those of us in the pro-life movement and, and common sense and science, uh, we say, well, you know, life begins at conception. That's why no abortion is acceptable. But this is the world in which we've created, and that's why our response has to be, has to be prayer, turning to God and, and begging for his mercy, which he always gives, and, and also going to work for these, the ultimate victims of abortion, these, these unborn children who are who are being targeted now more than ever in our in our country. Talk, talk some about, uh, comment on Governor Northam's of uh, Virginia comment on the radio show uh, describing the bill that was defeated in committee, but would have done uh, much the same that the New York state law would allow, and especially his comment that the child would be kept comfortable until its fate was decided. I found that particularly uh, unconscionable. It, it is. 
it's unconscionable. It sounds like a made-up conversation that you and I are having right now, but it's all too real. He said just that, you know, and said we would deliver the baby. We would get the baby comfortable, which anybody with any sanity realizes if you're going to make a baby comfortable, that baby has to be alive to do so. And and then he said we would have a conversation with with the – he said parents, which is inaccurate because men have no rights. So that was an inaccurate comment. Have a conversation with the mother and with the doctor and then decide. And it, it, it's not only the content of what he is saying that should be startling. It's the tone in which he delivers that brutal message. It, it's very casual. This is as if we're discussing somebody having a knee surgery or having their tonsils removed. Right. And he is talking about – I mean I have, I have seven children. I've been very blessed to see seven human beings my little boys and girls come into the world there's nothing like that moment every parent has experienced it and for him to casually say yeah we're going to deliver the baby and and get he or she comfortable and then decide it it, it takes everything to an entirely new level and it's evil that's all it is and i think it i think it betrays also the kind of the philosophical um feedback between the euthanasia movement and the abortion movement, because that idea of the person who wants to end their life or those in charge of that person's fate, believing that their life should be ended, um, that it's still going to be, um, it's not going to hurt them or it's going to put them out of their misery or it's going to be done in a um, compassionate way. All this um, euphemistic language frankly yeah yeah and and it's you know as we sit here and talk about this you know the the baby is is lying there and somehow we're this tolerant compassionate society that is going to do this this baby boy or baby girl a favor by by killing them and somehow that's a service to the to the mother i mean uh, you you don't recover from this abortion is hard enough as is but this is this is a whole new level, and it shows our disconnect with the humanity of the baby. And you said it. I mean, abortion by its nature is birth control. This is about control. We decide your value. We decide your dignity. And therefore, we decide if you should continue to live. And this is the mentality, the, the contraceptive mentality that we've gotten ourselves into, and this is what it leads to. It leads to dehumanizing a segment of the population so that we can control them, even as, as they're, they're laying on a table and they've, they've been birthed. So, you know, it, it also points to the fundamental message of the pro-life movement, which is one of hope. I mean, this scenario that, that Governor Northam laid out survives on despair, and it survives on, on, a, on a culture of death, as John Paul II said. And we're just seeing the epitome of that. And I encourage people, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas says that, that, you know, God permits great evil to bring out a greater good. And I do think that the insanity that we're seeing from from people like Governor Cuomo, uh, Governor Northam, I think that that has woken a lot of people up who were maybe pro-life but didn't do a whole lot or or were on the fence. I mean, (laughs) he's. 
the, the people that genuinely support abortion, you know, sort of the passive, I would never have one, but I, you know, if somebody else needs to have one, I'm not going to tell them what to do. These pro-abortion people, none of them agree with this. They think that this is madness. So in that, that there is great hope. It is a wake-up call, and there's a lot of good going on. You know, we've seen half of the abortion facilities in America closed the last 20 years. So I think that they are – they're mad at Trump. And they want to do everything, and Cuomo said that. We are running in the opposite direction of Donald Trump, and I, I don't care if you love Trump or hate Trump. You shouldn't take it out on an unborn baby, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. Well said. Yeah, I want to finish uh, with – Polling, a Gallup, Gallup polling from 2018 found only 13% of Americans favor making third trimester abortions generally legal. Only 18% of Democrats shared that position. Um, so this is, a, this is a minority opinion. This is a fringe opinion, and it should, it should stay that way. And galvanizing the pro-life movement through things like the 40 Days for Life benefit are how we do that. Sean... Tell us one more time about the benefit here in Bryan College Station and just uh, appeal to people to, to come out to it. Well, you know, we are going uh, to get into this at the benefit. We'll have a full report and breakdown of everything. It's on February the 21st. We'll have Raymond Arroyo as our speaker. You can RSVP for the benefit by going to 40daysforlife.com slash benefit. That's 40daysforlife.com slash benefit. You'll also hear from... Uh, Chuck Konzelman and Carrie Sullivan, who are the writers, producers, and directors of the Unplanned movie. They okay. came to our building, the headquarters of 40 Days for Life, where Abby worked. Uh, but when they were making the movie, uh, they, they, they get it, and they've participated in 40 Days for Life. You'll hear them. Everybody who attends the benefit will have an opportunity to see the movie at no charge. It's opening weekend wow. on uh, March the 29th. And so I encourage folks, to, to RSVP soon. We are filling up quicker than, than we have in a long time. And so uh, it'll, it'll be a great night. It'll be an inspiring night, uh, but it's going to be a night where we, we see where we are and, and see where we're not and, and, you know, trust God as we take a step forward to end this injustice like it ended in Bryan College Station. Is our friend from Croatia going to be joining us again? <laughs> he was awesome. Ante is not coming over, but who is coming back by popular demand is Robert Cahoon, who is the international director of 40 Days for Life. He Super. is in London, England, so Super. he will come over with his uh, British accent. His accent is real. <laughs> uh, so he will, uh, he will be over, and I'm sure he'll have a couple of uh, swipes at, at Texas and at America, but Perfect. we'll have some fun with that. He will be there. A lot of good news going on internationally as well, and trust me, the world is watching this mayhem unfold and, and seeing how we Americans respond. Well, this is the this has been the wonderful Sean Carney with 40 Days for Life, uh, President and Executive Director. Yes, sir. Okay. Keep up the good work, and we'll see you on February 21st, Sean. Okay. God bless. Look forward to it. Thank you. Bye-bye. I've been healing
back. And as promised, here on the Red Sea Roundup, we have the great Jimmy Aiken. Most of our listeners are familiar with him. Jimmy is the lead apologist at uh, Catholic Answers, and he's weekly on Catholic Answers Live here on the Red Sea, Round, uh, Red sea Radio. And uh, Jimmy's a convert to the faith and has an extensive background in Bible theology, the Church Fathers, philosophy, canon law, and liturgy. And he makes ample use of that on Catholic Answers Live when he answers some of those questions. And it sounds like he has no trouble remembering everything. So welcome, Jimmy. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. You're extremely kind. Well, uh, I have always have uh, such admiration when I hear you on the radio. Uh, I am in charge of our RCIA program at church, and uh, when I'm asked a question, most of the time for me, there's either a dramatic pause or I'm going to have to look this up, which is never the case with you. So. <laughs> well, I can be stumped. Ask me anything about saints and their biographies, at least, and I'm likely to know less than other folks. So is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about you that they might not be familiar with? Oh, boy, I don't know. Um, you know, you, you summed up what I do for a living pretty well. Um, I occasionally talk about other stuff on Catholic Answers Live, like the fact I call dances and so forth. People will know I'm a sci-fi and comic book fan, so I try to be a well-rounded personality. Um, obviously, one thing I want them to know is that I have a new book out, which is called Teaching with Authority. Um, it's about how to understand what the church teaches, how to read church documents, weigh them, you know, figure out just how authoritative a statement is or isn't, and uh, to be able to really get a grasp on church teaching for yourself instead of having to be dependent on just what other people tell you. And uh, people can get a copy of that book by going to Amazon.com. It's available in paperback. It's also available for Kindle. So you could uh, download it and be reading it just moments from now. Or if you're like me and you like audiobooks, you could even have your Kindle device read it to you out loud. So uh, lots of ways that we can appreciate that new book of yours, Teaching with Authority. My question to you is, with all the things that you do, when do you find time to write? Well, whenever I can. Uh, this morning, I woke up at 6 a.m. local time and started working again on my uh, latest book, which is going to be part of the Catholic Answers 20 Answers series. I'm doing uh, 20 answers on the New Testament and uh, have it almost finished, almost ready to turn in. Wonderful. We're looking forward to that. But back to teaching with authority. Why that title? Well, basically, it's derived from the Gospel of Mark. One of the things that um, Mark comments on is the fact that when Jesus taught, people marveled at the way he did it, because he didn't teach like the scribes. The scribes were kind of the Bible interpreters of their day, and so they, they sounded a lot like Bible interpreters today. They'd say, well, here's what I think this passage means, or here's what this school of thought says it means. Um, but Jesus, by contrast, taught with authority. Uh, he used his divine authority as the Son of God. You can really see him doing that in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, for example, where he'll say, you have heard this or that, but I say, and then he uses his own authority as the Son of God to settle the question. And so um, 
Jesus had a kind of authority that went beyond just like scholarship or expertise. As the Son of God, he had he was a direct pipeline into the truth, and so consequently he taught in a very authoritative manner. And he then went on to share that authority with his church. Uh, he promised that he would uh, continue to guide his church until the end of the world. He says that in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. In John's Gospel, he promised the Holy Spirit would lead the disciples into all the truth. And uh, consequently, uh, that makes the church what St. Paul says is the pillar and the foundation of truth in the world. And so Jesus shared his divine teaching authority with the church. And so consequently, the church has a teaching authority that goes beyond just scholarship or expertise. It's actually guided by God, and that's why it teaches with authority, and that's why we need to take what it says seriously. What were you thinking as being the need for this book? Well, so I've been working professionally as an apologist for more than 25 years now, and in that time I've had to work very closely with church documents, uh, get lots of questions about what the church teaches. Controversies are constantly erupting, especially due to the media or things that people are saying on the Internet. And so I have a constant need to go back to the church's documents and read them and reread them. And one of the things that uh, I discovered over the course of the last 25 years is that there's a there's a kind of a set of skills that you need in order to read church documents. It's just like reading the Bible. The Bible is a set of documents that were written in other languages, in another culture, a long time ago by people who didn't think exactly like modern people. And so consequently, you have to learn when you're studying the Bible how to translate the thought of the Bible into modern thought so we can express what it says in a way that makes sense to people today. And that's part of the process of you know, doing Bible study and writing Bible commentaries and things like that. Well, it turns out there's loads of books out there about how to interpret the Bible, but there's almost no books about how to understand church documents. Um, they're similar to the Bible in a lot of ways. They're frequently not written in English originally. They have to be translated, and they tend to be written by, you know, experts, uh, popes and bishops, and they they have a kind of different style than the way people normally talk and normally write. They often involve concepts that require some effort to unpack. And so it requires a set of skills like the set you need to read the Bible, but different. And so I wanted to write a book that would give people those skills. It's kind of the uh, teach a man to fish principle. You know, I answer lots of questions about what does the church teach on this or that, and it's kind of like giving a man a fish, you know, something to satisfy his immediate hunger. But, you know, they, there's the saying, if you, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And so what I wanted to do was empower people by giving them the ability to read church documents with confidence and really understand what they say. This is something that we really that people really need to be able to do today because there's so much confusion about what the church teaches. You have um, the media constantly distorting what the church says, either out of ignorance because most reporters, frankly, are not well educated, 
especially about religion, or even out of malice or an attempt to just gin up drama so they can get more clicks or more ratings or more newspaper sales. Um, you have people, politicians, who may be nominally Catholic, but they uh, they have adopted anti-Catholic values, and so they'll try to distort church teaching in the public mind to justify themselves and to get votes. Um, and then you have people, you know, writing on social media or on blogs uh, who may be Catholic and who may have great intentions, but they really, you know, haven't haven't figured out how to read church documents carefully, and so they end up making mistakes, and it creates a lot of confusion. So I wanted to write a book that would let people cut through those voices of confusion and see for themselves what the church does and does not say. So this book would be of great value for almost any of us as Catholics, wanting to understand more exactly how to interpret what it is that the Church actually teaches. That's right. That was my intention. And again, remind us, how would we get a copy of this book? Um, you can go to Amazon.com. It's available there in paperback and Kindle. You could also go to shop.catholic.com and get it directly from Catholic Answers, or you could get it from your local Catholic bookstore. Wonderful. Um, if I'm listening to this program and I'm hearing you talk about this book, what would you say to me to encourage me to read this book? Because, you know, a lot of times, yes, you know, people will tell themselves, well, you know, the bishops need to know this, the priests need to know this, you know, <laughs> why do I need to know this? Everybody needs to know their faith. Um, that's something that uh, is made clear from the New Testament itself, um, and even from the Old Testament. Um, that's why God had uh, set up the priesthood in part, even in the Old Testament, was to teach people about God. So we all need to know about God, we all need to know our faith, and we need to understand it clearly. Uh, one of the things that St. Peter talks about in Second uh, Peter is how some people who he describes as being ignorant or unstable will twist the writings of St. Paul and the other scriptures to their own destruction. And that's a, a, a sign of just how serious it is that we need to understand our own faith. And it applies today, too. Uh, some people twist the teachings of the Church to their own destruction. And so they need to be able to understand what the Church teaches, they need to be able to appropriate it for themselves so that it can inform their spiritual life and enrich them spiritually and enrich uh, their knowledge of God and ultimately draw them closer to God. What would you say are the biggest challenges for most people in figuring out exactly what it is the Church teaches? Because we are inundated with all kinds of different statements about this is what the Church teaches. Yeah, well, um, one of the big challenges is getting past the summaries that other people give you, because that's all that the news media normally gives you. It tries to give a summary. It's usually not very accurate. At most, it will give you a few snippets in quotation marks, but then it tells you it, it, what the overall message is without showing you what the church actually says. And so you're dependent on the reporter to accurately summarize it for you. And like I said, most reporters don't know beans about religion. 
And so consequently, the summaries are usually inaccurate in one way or another. And if you don't go to the original documents, if you don't read them for yourself, then you're really putting yourself at the mercy of other people and trusting that they are summarizing accurately and they're not leaving out important qualifications or important context that you need to understand the issue. And so that first hurdle that people face is uh, a big one. They need to they need to not simply take what they're told at face value. Whenever you see a headline in a newspaper or on a TV show or on social media, you need to be suspicious and you need to not just take that headline as being accurate. You need to go beyond it and look at what the church has actually said. And that means taking a look at the original documents and reading them. Um, so that's kind of the first big hurdle, and it's one that unfortunately most people never get over. They they are they just leave themselves vulnerable to manipulation by uh, people who may not have their best spiritual interests at heart. When um, I was looking through the book, one of the chapters uh, on the key principles of interpretation, and you already talked about a little bit that uh, you know this is required for reading the Bible, but it's also necessary for looking at the teachings of the church. What are some of the principles that we need to utilize when we're trying to wade through some of the different styles and um types of church teaching. One of the one of the foundational principles that I talk about is there's a need to look at what the document actually says. What do the words say? Um, this is something that's an easy step to skip because when we're reading, let's say something the Pope has said, we tend to fill in missing pieces and we tend to have assumptions about what he's saying that may not always be accurate. And so a first step, just like when you're reading the Bible, is not to, not to say, oh, well, I know what this means, and leave it at that, but to stop and say, okay, let's take this word by word. What does this actually say? And then you need to ask a follow-up question. What does this not say? Because that's an important question, too. Oftentimes, we assume that texts are saying something when really they're not. There's often a lot more flexibility in texts than we realize. And so a principle that I apply, whether I'm reading the Bible or a church document, is I, I go word by word. I look at it very carefully. I ask what it must mean and what it doesn't necessarily mean. I, I make a list of all of the things that a given statement might mean you know, it could mean this, it could mean that, it could mean a number of things. And then I try to narrow down after I've, you know, thought about what it might mean, I try to narrow down what it must mean from that. And there's often some room for uh, ambiguity there. That's one of the things about language. It's ambiguous. And that's one of the reasons we have so many different interpretations of the Bible. And it's one reason we have so many different interpretations of church documents. That ambiguity is even intentional at times. For example, when the Council of Trent met, you know, it wanted to formulate a response to various ideas about justification that were being promoted in Protestant circles. 
But uh, and it did that. But not every Catholic theologian had exactly the same opinions about justification. So you had Thomists who had one understanding. You had Franciscans who had another understanding. And so when the fathers of the Council of Trent met, they needed to find a way to reject various ideas that were being promoted in Protestant circles that were not accurate, but without just mandating a single view of justification for all Catholic theologians that would you know, settle things one way or another in favor of either the Dominicans or the Franciscans or whomever. And so it used, uh, for, it used various formulas in its teaching on justification that did respond to mistaken ideas, but that still preserved a legitimate room for discussion among Catholic theologians. And you see the same things in documents today. When the Pope issues an encyclical, there, are, there will be certain things he wants to teach and he wants to make sure that everybody understands, but he also preserves space for Catholic theologians to continue to discuss matters and to continue to debate them because that's how the Holy Spirit continues to lead us into a deeper understanding of the truth is through that discussion and debate. So he never wants to just close off every interpretation. Uh, he, he will leave room for discussion. And it's important to recognize, therefore, not just what a text says, but what it doesn't say as well. And therefore, it's important to not just assume that a text says whatever I want it to say. Uh, that's a common fault of interpreters, both of the Bible and of church documents, uh, which is to read a text and say, oh, I can use this to support my view, as if it proves my view, when in fact it may not do that. So th those are some important principles to use uh, when reading church documents or any documents, including the Bible. Before we continue our conversation with Jimmy Aiken, the author of Teaching with Authority, I want to remind our listeners that we still have the three tickets to the spaghetti dinner, and they're available to the first caller at 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. First caller, you get the uh, tickets to the spaghetti dinner. Uh, Jimmy, remind us again of how... Uh, people can uh, get a copy of your book. Yeah, it's available uh, through a number of different ways. You can get it in paperback at Amazon.com. You can also get it downloaded onto your Kindle, which can even read it to you out loud. You can also get it from shop.catholic.com, and you can uh, get it from your local Catholic bookstore. Just ask them to order it if they don't have it in stock. One thing that comes up quite often is... When is the Pope teaching with authority? Uh, so often we have mm -hmm. nowadays Pope Francis, he puts out an encyclical and it's ignored and he makes one statement on an airplane and the church's teaching has changed forever. How do we weigh that? <laughs> Yeah, so this is one of the things that uh, I discuss at, in the book, um, is how to weigh different kinds of documents that you'll encounter, like an encyclical versus the transcript of, a, of, a, of an interview that the Pope gives aboard a plane. And there's a definite spectrum. 
Um, at the high end, our encyclicals, they're not the most authoritative document that the Pope may issue, but they're close to being the most authoritative. So they're on the high end of the spectrum. Uh, then as you move down the spectrum, you find things like general audiences and homilies and so forth. And then at the bottom, you get to things that really are not acts of church teaching. Um, these can include uh, books that the Pope may choose to publish, you know, through, say, a secular publisher, uh, like Pope Benedict's uh, Jesus of Nazareth series. Um, it's an excellent series, but in the preface to the first volume, he makes it clear that this is not an act of the magisterium. And so he says with remarkable humility, you know, I mean, this guy's the Pope, uh, but he goes, he says, everybody is therefore free to disagree with me. So, um, so you know, the Pope is really the one who determines the level of authority he's investing in a statement, and that level of authority can go all the way up to infallible, which is usually only found in documents like apostolic constitutions, which are even above encyclicals, or it can go all the way down to zero, so that he's just saying something as a private individual and saying, this is my view, but other people can disagree with me. When it comes to uh, interviews that the Pope gives, those are given off the top of his head, so he doesn't have time to, to stop and consult with experts and make sure everything is phrased exactly, you know, properly, put all the, all the crosses on the T's and dots on the I's. Uh, he doesn't have a chance to stop and revise. And so consequently, interviews are informal things that are not used to issue authoritative church teaching. Um, they're not acts of the magisterium. If the Pope really wants to mandate something for all Catholics to believe, he's going to do it in a document that he's had time to meditate and prepare on and consult with other people about, and then he'll officially publish it through the Vatican. Uh, it's not just going to be something he says on a plane coming back from a trip or something like that. Speaking of infallibility, this has been one of the most misunderstood teachings of the Church. How are we to understand the term infallible when it refers to the teachings of the Church? Well, it, uh, it, we need to distinguish it from a couple of related concepts. Um, to say that something is infallible means that it's protected from being wrong, um, it doesn't mean it's phrased well or is going to be easy to understand. It just means it's not going to be wrong. And uh, that means it's related to the concept of inerrancy. Inerrancy is the property of being free from error. But there are things that are inerrant that weren't taught infallibly. For example, let's say you take a geometry test and you work all of the problems correctly. You didn't make any errors. Well, then your geometry test is going to be inerrant, but you were not protected by God from getting a wrong answer. And so your geometry test, however correct it was, isn't written under the gift of infallibility. So infallibility is something greater than just inerrancy or being free of error, although it does imply that things are free from error. If it's less than if it's greater than inerrancy, it's also less than another concept, which is inspiration. Um, the Bible and the Bible alone is divinely inspired. That means that God himself breathes it. 
God himself is the principal author of Scripture, even though he used human authors to write it as his agents. Um, the Pope is not like one of the authors of Scripture. God is not uh, dictating or guiding the way what the Pope says, the way he guided the authors of Scripture in uh, what they said in the Bible. And so as a result, church documents are not on the same level as the Bible. Even when the Pope is speaking infallibly, what he says is not divinely inspired. It's just protected from being wrong. And so that's fundamentally what inerrancy, what in, um, what uh, infallibility is. It's a protection from error that God gives the Church, and he does so whenever it uses its teaching authority at the highest level, because God doesn't want the Pope or the bishops to be able to bind the faithful to believe something that's false. And so when they use their teaching authority in the most binding way, he guarantees that he'll protect them from teaching something that's false. And listening to you, I think that's an important point for us to remember, that infallibility doesn't speak to the character of the individual, even if he's Pope, it speaks of the protection that God provides to that individual or to the Church in making an error. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you look, for example, at the very first Pope, St. Peter, well, he actually denied the Christian faith in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, I am not this man's disciple. And nevertheless, you know, he, so he, he had a definite weak character. He definitely committed sins, big ones, um, even as the leader of the apostles he did. But um, Jesus, you know, kept him in office and forgave him, and he went on to write two infallible uh, and inspired even uh, letters. They're First and Second Peter, and they're right there in the New Testament. So even flawed human beings like Peter, can be used as God's instruments to teach authoritatively and even infallibly. Which brings me to next question, uh, speaking of human beings. What weight do bishops' conferences have as far as church teaching authority and infallibility even? Well, um, so a bishops' conference is a, a, a group of bishops that are uh, gathered in one particular territory, like the bishops of the United States, and consequently they don't represent the whole of the church's bishops. They just represent a group of bishops locally. And because they don't represent the whole of the church's bishops, they're not capable of teaching infallibly. So there are no statements by a bishops conference anywhere in the world that engage the church's infallibility. They may repeat teachings that are already infallible, but they can't issue new infallible teachings. Um, the authority that they are able to teach with is therefore limited. And one of the things that um, got clarified during the pontificate of John Paul II was actually just how limited bishops' conference statements are. Each bishop has his own teaching authority, his own magisterium, that he's able to exercise in his own diocese, but he can't impose it on other bishops. And so even if you have a group of bishops, they can't impose their own teaching authority on each other. And so consequently, when bishops issue documents 
even if they deal with doctrine, they don't engage the church's magisterium unless one of two things happens. The first thing is all of the bishops agree, so it's unanimous, so no bishop is imposing his teaching authority on another bishop, or um, if they ask the Holy See and the Holy See then approves the document. And when you apply those tests to where the bishops either have to be unanimous on a matter of doctrine or they have to get the approval of the Holy See for what they want to teach, it turns out that, that basically no uh, conference documents end up being authoritative acts of the magisterium. They therefore are important not because they engage the church's magisterium, but because they reveal to us the thought of the bishops, and that's very important to know. Now, we have heard much concern about the use of the word infallible, and people think that, you know, there's so much that the church teaches that is infallible. But in reality, that's not really true. There's been very few infallible statements, haven't there? Uh, among popes, yes. Now, um, at least when it comes to doctrine. Now, some people will argue that saint canonizations are infallible, and so there have been a lot of papal saint canonizations, a few hundred, certainly. Um, but um, those aren't really doctrines, the idea that, you know, John Bosco is in heaven or something. That's not really a doctrine like transubstantiation is. And so if you, if you look just at infallible statements uh, regarding doctrine, it's a smaller number. Um, most of the infallible teachings on a, of a doctrinal nature that there have been have not been issued by popes. They've been issued by ecumenical councils like uh, the First Council of Nicaea, which wrote the original version of the Nicene Creed that we say, or the Council of Trent, or Vatican I. Um, if you look, though, at what uh, popes have said infallibly, you get kind of a range of opinion. There are some people who are sort of minimalists who think there have only been two cases of papal infallibility. Um, one was when Pius IX defined the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854. Uh, the other, according to this view, was when Pius XII defined the Assumption of Mary in 1950. And uh, so those, that's the minimalist position. Then you have the maximalists kind of at the other end of the spectrum, and they would say, okay, there's at least 14 or so papal documents that have uh, that have been infallible, that have contained infallible teachings. Um, most scholars are somewhere in the middle. Most scholars think that there's about six to eight uh, different papal documents where the pope has engaged his infallibility. Now, in those documents, sometimes there will be more than one statement he teaches infallibly. So it's not just six or eight infallible statements. It's six or eight infallible documents. Um, and I go through those in the book. I talk about the minimalists and the maximalists, and I go through what they've proposed, and I show you the reasons why most scholars are somewhere in the middle. Again, uh, you do cover that in your book, and where would our listeners get a copy of that? They can get it from Amazon.com. It's available in paperback and on Kindle. And you can also get it from shop.catholic.com or your local Christian bookstore.
wonderful, and I urge everybody go out and get it. It's a wonderful book, and it's a resource that every Catholic should have on their shelf. Now, uh, I wish we had more time. We've only got a minute and a half left uh, wrapping up the show. So before, uh, let's go away from the book for a minute. And what new projects have you got going? Oh, well, um, I mentioned earlier, I've got uh, 20 Answers, New Testament, that's going to be coming out from uh, Catholic Answers. The most recently released thing I have is a three-CD set, also from Catholic Answers, called The Very First Fathers. If you go to Catholic.com, there will be a banner there on the homepage for The Very First Fathers, and it's a look at um, documents from the first and second century that are outside the New Testament and that give us a very interesting window on the earliest Christians and what they thought and believed and how they worshipped. I have uh, quotations in there from a hymn book from the first century. Uh, I have quotations in that set from a private revelation from the first century. And so there's a lot of stuff uh, that's very fascinating from this very early period outside the New Testament that most people have never heard about. So if you're interested in learning all the cool, secret, first-century stuff, check out my set, The Very First Fathers, at Catholic.com. Again, we've been talking with Jimmy Aiken, the author of Teaching with Authority and the uh, lead apologist for Catholic Answers. And, uh, Jimmy, I want to thank you for being on the show and uh, want to thank you for writing this book. I found it extremely fascinating. And Thank uh, you so much. I hope that you continue writing and uh, look forward, of course, to listening to your brilliant answers on Catholic Answers Live here on Red Sea Catholic Radio. And uh, I thank, thank you, you for working in uh, radio because uh, it's a wonderful resource for us as Catholics. You're much too kind. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And I want to remind everybody that the Red Sea Roundup will be back next week with Gene Wilhelm as your host. And until then, when you're considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Talking.